Hello everyone, welcome to Cult Hackers, my name is Stephen Mather, I'm one of the hosts. This is our sixth in our mini-series of bonus episodes called The Psychology of Cults, where I dig deeper into how cults work from a psychological perspective. These episodes are scripted and you can read the full scripts on my Medium page. The theme of today's episode is managing a cult. Cults are the subject of much popular interest for many reasons. They often seem to have strange beliefs, and the followers seem to do unfathomable things. Lay people wonder why members do what they do, and why they stay in situations that are not in their own interests. My own experience of cults is that I was born and raised in one, leaving the Jehovah's Witnesses when I was 30. After I left with no career and few formal qualifications, I pursued a role in organisational and leadership development, ultimately gaining a BSc in psychology and a master's in organisational psychology. I'm now an organisational psychologist, leadership development trainer and improvement coach. So it's from this, if not unique, somewhat unusual perspective that I now study this topic. So as a topic of research, cults draw upon a number of disciplines, including sociology, psychology, religious studies, as well as research into the clinical and psychological support required for leavers. What's often forgotten in the discussion about cults is that, as well as being a specific type of social phenomena, they are essentially a type of organisation. So that's been the focus of this mini-series. In organisations, there is normally a person or team who fulfil a leadership and management function. Most researchers into leadership and management see these two roles as being complementary but different in emphasis. To put it simply, leadership is about creating a vision, inspiring, motivating and generally dealing with people. Management is more focused upon the organisation and utilisation of the resources available to achieve the goals. In a previous episode, I've discussed leadership in a cult, in particular the tendencies for cult leaders to use charismatic and transformational leadership styles. So in this episode, I'm going to focus on the management of a cult. I'm defining a cult as an organisation or group that systematically uses the tactics of coercive control to unduly influence people into behaving in a way not in their own interests. For more Detailed definitions see the works of Lifton, Lalich, Hassan and Stein and many others. Cults normally start with a single, often a very charismatic person who persuades a few people to start following them. Often they claim access to hidden knowledge or a secret of success in a specific domain. A route to God, personal success, transformative peace. This could be through religious, commercial personal development methods or any number of approaches. I just want to be clear that I'm not saying here that all religions, commercial or personal development organisations are cults. That depends upon the methods they use, as stated. It's the coercive control that really defines the cult. In the early days of the cult, the leader will probably have a close one-to-one relationship with the followers and organising their activity will consist of the leader directly telling the followers what to do. Then if it grows, the group will then need to develop systems and processes to coordinate its activity. This is a similar process to most small teams or organisations. 
As in many organisations, but perhaps especially so for cults, this can be a problematic time as it requires leaders being willing to delegate and give up some day-to-day control. Cult leaders, by their very nature, are often very keen to maintain total control. Also, cult leaders are often far from the mastermind they like to project. In reality, they're often chaotic, unstable, given to wild mood swings and far from strategic. Ultimately, however, for any organisation to survive and grow, this bureaucratization is part of its development. I suggest that those that fail to do this remain small or ultimately fizzle out, the fate that ultimately befalls most, if not all, cultic groups. Okay, jumping ahead to when the cult has grown to a point where it has multiple centres and more people than can be coordinated by a single individual. It starts behaving in some similar ways to more orthodox organisations. It's interesting to observe that rather than through some set of mystical miracles or direction of God, or even the application of some secret higher knowledge, most larger cults actually operate in a very humdrum way, very much like a business, using systems and processes to get things done, albeit with unorthodox or bizarre sounding titles and some disturbing differences, which we'll talk about. For work to be coordinated, whether that be collecting money, proselytising, building, farming, food and drink production, or delivering development programmes or whatever, individuals will need to be given responsibility to get certain things done. Most cults, like most businesses, follow a pyramidal organisational structure with the leader at the top, supported by a small group of most trusted lieutenants who give direction and edicts to a set of what are essentially middle managers, who in turn manage more junior line leaders. This structure is useful for obvious reasons of being able to cascade instructions to the entire organisation, but also as a way to provide the possibility of a sense of being able to climb the so-called corporate ladder, at least for some members of the group. Increasing a sense of personal importance and value to the group, which itself strengthens psychological ties with it. But unlike normal commercial organisations, there is seldom an increased set of tangible rewards associated with progression. Cults normally operate through the use of volunteer or slave labour, depending upon your point of view. Therefore, the rewards for progression are mainly ones relating to status or feelings of contributing to a higher calling. I find it interesting that the fact that many, if not most, cults are able to operate in this way demonstrates the power of what Frederick Hertzberg described as true motivators, including a sense of achievement, personal growth and recognition. Most businesses decide upon goals and targets for their teams and individuals. These are then measured through the use of key performance indicators, or KPIs, allowing managers at all levels to take action when targets are not being met. In my experience, cultic groups do this too. In the group in which I was raised, individually, our set of KPIs revolved around the proselytisation work. These KPIs included hours spent preaching, number of Bible studies held, number of books and brochures placed, and the number of return visits made to people who showed any initial interest. All of these numbers had to be reported on a monthly basis, 
and these would be added to the local group's figures and then sent to the country's branch office. Collecting this sort of data means that both at the individual level and various organisational levels, the organisation can manage its resources. On a group basis, trends can be identified, changes made to increase the effectiveness of the preaching work, plans can be made for handling growth or contraction in the demand of various resources, such as physical places of worship. And on an individual basis, the local elders, essentially the line managers of the rank and file members, are able to spot when the level of effort and performance fails to meet that required. A quiet word can be had or some encouragement given in order to ensure levels of work are maintained. In my experience, the fact that there was no monetary remuneration given for this work was never even considered. It was part of our sacred service to God. In the meantime, throughout my youth and up to the point when I left, millions more people became members of the group, each contributing their own financial resources and labour to them. For my group, by far the most important KPI was hours logged. Everything really boiled down to this single number, at least for us rank and file members. Various types of service were defined by this number and opportunities for progression were also determined by it. Now, as a management consultant, I often warn managers about the risks associated with KPIs. Although they can be a vital tool for managers to understand what's happening with the team or wider business, they can also drive some unanticipated and even unwanted behaviours. A group with effectively a single KPI ends up driving a sort of mindless focus upon that measure, resulting in behaviour that is solely about achieving it, without a thought for the real purpose of what it's supposed to be about. For me, examples of this included walking as slowly as possible between houses when engaged in house-to-house preaching, or choosing to walk long distances between return visits on people who might have showed some interest, carrying on calling upon people who would happily chat with you but knowing they were not in the least bit interested in joining. There were many little tricks you could use to drag out the time so that the number on the report card said the right thing. As a business consultant, I would see this as a poor use of KPIs, but it is not uncommon. Following the banking crisis and credit crunch of 2008, an investigation into lenders found that aggressive targets and big bonuses for sales staff led to mis-selling of loans and mortgages. These are consequences that could be anticipated for groups with just regular people in charge, but perhaps one would question how the God of the universe ends up with such a system. Another management tool is the implementation of processes and systems. For regular organisations, processes are designed or they develop as the best way to do something. These may be known as Standard Operating Procedures or SOPs. These SOPs are often step-by-step processes, written down, stored and are controlled documents. For cults, operating procedures take two main forms. The first of these are the edicts from the leader. These edicts can be very detailed depending upon the nature of the leadership. They may also be labelled as being from God or another supernatural entity. Due to the extreme coercive control, more on this later, these edicts must be followed regardless of the consequences. For instance, decisions about how to deal with people who are not obedient, 
refusal of life-saving medical treatment or policies about shunning, child protection, etc. These instructions might come in the form of publications or letters from the leader or leaders or directly from their mouth in broadcast to the rank and file. The second type of standard operating procedure is more mundane and tends to be the rules instigated at a local level. For the group in which I was raised, Jehovah's Witnesses, the local authority is the body of elders in the congregation. Only men can serve in this function and local elders are expected to organise the running of the congregation, including its preaching activity and the meetings at the local kingdom hall. They are given a lot of detailed instruction about how this is to be done, but they have some discretion. And at times, local bodies of elders can appear to be a law unto themselves. As I was growing up, there were stories of local elders doing things that went against the policies of the organisation. This power struggle could only ever have one ending. Any authority the elders may have thought they had was very much contingent upon the good grace of the organisation. I've heard of whole bodies of elders being removed. Many businesses struggle to ensure that everyone follows the standard operating procedures and other rules. But this is where a cult tends to, in scare quotes, excel thanks to its coercive nature. Depending upon the perceived seriousness... Disobedience can result not just in a management telling off, but in the disapproval of God himself, and ultimately in being put outside of the group, which might include being cut off and shunned by family and friends. In the 18th century, a British sociologist and philosopher, Jeremy Bentham, suggested a design of prison called the Panopticon. The design was such that all prisoners were housed in the outside of a circle of accommodation cells, which would be faced into the centre. At the centre was a single prison guard in a tower, who could not be seen by the prisoners, but who, in theory, would be able to view any prisoner in any cell at any time. It was theorised that the fact that any individual prisoner knew they could be being watched at any time would essentially create self-regulation, ensuring they obeyed the rules. Although the single prison guard could not possibly be watching everyone, just the thought that they might be watching you was enough. It was as though each prisoner had a prison guard inside their own head. The panopticon has since become a metaphor for state surveillance and the implications of power and control. But its relevance to cults and high control groups is clear. Cults often find a way to create such a system of control. For me, creating in me a belief that Jehovah was always watching meant there was no point trying to hide any wrong behaviour from the elders. Other systems of control include generating a sense of fear, obligation and guilt sometimes known by the acronym FOG, means that intrinsic negative motivators dominate the thinking of a devout follower of many cults. Former members of cults report psychological problems associated with beliefs about always being observed and even concern with what they were thinking, a form of control described as thought crime by George Orwell in his book 1984. Finally, I want to cover the related topic of discipline. Most, if not all, organisations have some 
form of procedure for disciplining certain types of behaviour. In the workplace, this might be formal warnings for things like lateness or dismissal for ongoing issues or gross misconduct. But cults are often particularly brutal when it comes to discipline. Some cults employ extremes such as physical beatings, removal of food and isolation. Other groups, such as my former group, use disfellowshipping or shunning as a way to punish errant behaviour and discourage others from doing things the group doesn't like. Shunning means that family and friends will no longer speak to the disfellowship person until they have been through a lengthy process called reinstatement. For more about this, see my article, What Should We Think About the Religious Practice of Shunning? or a former episode of this mini-series, The Problem with Shunning. Discipline and punishment within a coercive relationship may also not be linked to actual behaviour at all and actually be more a means to maintain dominance and control. If a follower can never be sure what they've done wrong or even if they've actually done something considered wrong at all, it creates a damaging hold the leader has over them. According to Alexandra Stein in her book Terror, Love and Brainwashing, This type of relationship can form a type of disorganised attachment where the individual needs the love of the abuser but at the same time fears them. In other words, the place they want to go for support and love is also the place of terror. This confusion leads to a dissociative state where the individual's normal levels of personal agency are suppressed. This has the effect of making them more compliant and obedient. Clearly these tactics are unethical and mark a clear difference between normal management within an organisation and the cult. Ultimately they are self-defeating too. Cults always end, some sooner, others later, but all suffer inevitable decline, in many ways as a result of their management and leadership practices. I will explore how cults end in another episode. Thank you for listening to Cult Hackers and our mini-series, The Psychology of Cults. My name is Stephen Mather and I'll speak to you next time.